I invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. It's a somewhat lengthy chapter. I'll be reading the entirety and looking at it with you tonight. Begin in verse 1. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his military force, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Then he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your most beautiful wives and your children are also mine. Then the king of Israel answered and said, It is according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. Then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, but about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants And whatever is desirable in your eyes, they will put in their hand and carry away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Please know and see how this man is looking for trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I withheld nothing from him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Say to my lord, the king, all that you sent for to your servant at the first I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought word to him again. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do to me and more also if the dust of Samaria will be sufficient For a handful for all the peoples who follow me. Then the king of Israel answered and said, Speak to him. Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Now it happened that when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his servants, Station yourselves. So they stationed themselves against the city. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says Yahweh, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And Ahab said, By whom? So he said, Thus says Yahweh, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he said, You. Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths with the 32 kings who helped him. And the young men of the rulers of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, Men have come out from Samaria. Then he said, If they have come out for peace, 
take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces and the military force which followed them, and they each struck his man. And the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck down the horses and the chariots and struck the Arameans with a great slaughter. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, and know and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come up against you. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods of the mountains. Therefore they were stronger than we. But rather let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. Do this thing. Remove the kings each from his place and put captains in their place, and you shall number a military force like the military force you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Now it happened at the turn of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Now the sons of Israel were mustered and were provided for and went to meet them. And the sons of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Arameans filled the land. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says Yahweh, because the Arameans have said, Yahweh is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So they camped one opposite the other seven days. Now it happened on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel struck down of the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, And the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city, into the inner chamber. Then his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are kings of loving kindness. Please let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will preserve your life. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men interpreted this as an omen and hastily catching his words said, Your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he took him up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father, I will return, and you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Ahab said, And I will let you go with this covenant. So he cut a covenant with him and let him go. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of Yahweh, please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, 
Because you have not listened to the voice of Yahweh, behold, as soon as you walk away from me, a lion will strike you down. And as soon as he had walked away from him, a lion found him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, please strike me. And the man struck him, wounding him. So the prophet walked away and stood by for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now it happened that as the king was passing by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Now it happened that while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him that he was of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says Yahweh, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and enraged and came to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. We need help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all your word. And we come to you now asking that you would help us as we've heard of this amazing account which is somewhat strange and foreign to us and we pray that you would make plain the things that you have for our instruction that we may know you in Christ's name amen well here we are at the close of what we call first kings and we've just been introduced to Elisha in chapter 19 after Elijah meets with God at Horeb at Mount Sinai and Elisha receives a call to ministry as it were and we're all excited about Elijah. We like Elijah the Tishbite, at least I do. And uh, Elisha's coming up and we think this is great and we want to stick with Elijah and Elisha and God the Spirit uh, in, changes course and tells us about this account of Ahab and interacting with prophets who don't have any names. And we think, come on, we want to be back to Elijah the Tishbite. At least uh, maybe you don't think that way. I think that way. And uh, I was just wanted to hear about Elisha. And now we have this chapter, and it's rather strange. And there's prophets we don't even know who they are. And one of them asking to hit him in the head like, uh, like he's in a boxing match. What on earth is this about? It's, it's, it doesn't follow as we would think it would follow. It, it doesn't read as we think it would read. It doesn't go the way we think it would go. But maybe that's one of, if not the dominant theme of this chapter. I want to entitle this message, The God Who Is Not Like Us. I think I had a different title in the bulletin. Um, well, you can pick which one you think is more relevant. The God Who Is Not Like Us. He doesn't accord with how we think he ought to be or how he ought to act. It's not that 
he changes, for God cannot change. But this chapter is a reminder that God is not like us. Pull back in a big picture, remember that in the flow of biblical history, of God's redemption of his people and the history of Israel, we are learning in these chapters why God's judgment fell upon the people with whom he had made a covenant. That's a, that's a good question. If God is a faithful God, if God is, as we read in our call to worship this morning, the God of Israel, think about that. God is in such close covenant with Israel that the name of Israel is now one of the names of God, the God of Israel. So the question is legitimate. After Assyria, years later, comes and demolishes Samaria and hauls off Israel in the north, off into um, captivity and, and spreads them all over the earth. Where is God's covenant? How come God failed, it seems, and God did not fail? We're learning why God's judgment fell upon Israel, and it's in no small part because of this character, this king of Israel in the north named Ahab, the husband of Jezebel. So with that, let's divide up our chapter into three sections, verses 1 through 21, 22 through 30, and 31 to 43. First, look with me at verses 1 through 21. We don't know exactly when this occasion happens. We we are just told here by the author of 1 Kings, ultimately the Holy Spirit, that there was an occasion when the king of Aram, the Arameans, fought against Israel in the north. And doubtless this was part of the judgment of God because God had promised as part of his blessing to his people that if they served him as their God, that he would defend them, that he would bless them. And having an army overrun your towns and your villages all the way up to your capital city of Samaria and besieging you is not actually a a sign of blessing. So this itself is a form of judgment upon Ahab and Israel in the north. This foreign nation has invaded the land overrun all of the tribes of Israel in the north and finally verse 1 went up and besieged Samaria. Samaria in the north is by this time the capital city of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. So the Arameans are around the city of Samaria. It's a siege. It's not pleasant and the king of Aram sends Ben-Hadad sends messengers and you get this back and forth and and at first, he sends a message, Ben-Hadad sends a message to Ahab, which would be typical. Basically, um, it would be typical for a conquering king to demand that the conquered king and the conquered people become vassals. In other words, the agreement is, I'll remove my troops, I'll stop the siege if you agree to basically be my vassal, be my servant, be my slave, and basically I get to pick whatever I want from the goods of your land. I get to uh, take the best of your food, I get to take the best of your servants, I get to take the best of your daughters for my wives. That's the deal when you're a vassal, a slave of a foreign occupier. And that's typical, and when you're faced between that arrangement and starvation or slaughter, 
It's a possibility. So that's why Ahab at first says, verse uh, 4, it is according to your word, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. It appears that Ahab, under the circumstances, with the troops surrounding the city, agrees to be a servant, a vassal of Ben-Hadad, the Arameans. He's, he thinks, you know, uh, well, that's a pretty typical arrangement. Uh, maybe it'll appease him. Maybe he'll lay off, remove his troops. We'll send him some things that make him happy, and, and then later maybe we can rebel. So he, he initially acquiesces, agrees. But then Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, isn't content to just succeed at a truce or at an agreement. He wants to humiliate Ahab. And so he says, tell you what, uh, that's good, but, but just to be clear, I'm going to send my servants tomorrow, and whatever they want, they're going to take. And that's not what Ahab was thinking. He was thinking of a much more respectable arrangement, which maintained and kept his dignity, even if he was a vassal of Aram. So he calls his advisors and they say, no way, don't consent, verse 8. And he tells Ben-Hadad, no way, I can't do that. And then Ben-Hadad threatens to utterly obliterate Ahab and the inhabitants of Samaria. Now, we see in verse 12 that Ben-Hadad and elsewhere, he likes to uh, imbibe a little bit, a little bit more than he should. And it's part of what contributes to his irrational rage and anger. It doesn't speak well of him. So that's the situation up until verse 12. Uh, Samaria, the capital city of Israel in the north, is surrounded, besieged. It's not looking good. We have a foreign invader, Ben-Hadad, who is intent on absolutely humiliating Ahab and the people of Israel. And out of nowhere, verse 13, behold. And notice the text there. It's, it's intentional. Behold. Um, the, this, is, this is a surprise. You don't see this coming. Because Ahab... Uh, is married to Jezebel, and, and Ahab and Jezebel have this habit of actually murdering the prophets of God. <laughs> um, Ahab isn't exactly on good terms with Yahweh. Uh, Ahab is certainly on the naughty list, to say the least. Uh, Ahab, of all people, should not be receiving somehow the mercy of God. But this is the first point I want to make tonight about this God who is not like us. How is he not like us? First, he is a God of extravagant covenant grace. Extravagant covenant grace. It is extravagant. You don't see this coming. Ahab certainly doesn't warrant it or deserve it. Even the people of Israel at this point, God had said to Elijah, I have preserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee or kissed Baal. That's not apparently very many. There's only a few people who actually are faithful to Yahweh, and yet because God is the God of Israel, and he keeps his end of the bargain or the covenant, in his extravagant grace, he 
acts in accordance with his part of the covenant, even though Ahab has blown it and Israel has blown it so much. It's extravagant. And I have to say, I wouldn't extend that kind of grace to Ahab. I don't like Ahab, do you? I really don't like him. Um, I mean, there's certain political characters right now in both parties that I'm not particularly fond of. <laughs> um, but, boy, Ahab would even be lower than them. I mean, he's, he is a rascal. He's a rat. He's a murderer. He's a, he's a, he's a well, he's just not a good man. <laughs> but God sends a prophet to Ahab, king of Israel, nonetheless, and without any demand of repentance or of any kind of gift or any kind of act on Ahab's part, God just says, I will deliver them into your hand and you shall know that I'm Yahweh. That's grace. I'm going to do this. You didn't ask, you didn't even ask me to. There's no, there's no record here that Ahab said, you know what, let's pray. This isn't a matter where uh, Ahab tore his robes and, and, and humbled himself and beseeched the Lord to save them. Nothing. They're besieged. They're starving. They're threatened with extinction. And the best that Ahab can do is, is uh, rely on his own resources. Nonetheless, God is merciful. He's a God of extravagant covenant grace. He gives his word to Ahab and tells him how he's going to deliver him. Verse 14, Ahab says, by who? And Yahweh says, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. And you say, why the young men of the rulers of the provinces? And I say, I don't know. Do you? (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe someone makes a real good point about that, but I have no idea. There's the detail. Maybe it's just that um, maybe these guys are somewhat inexperienced and God wants to demonstrate that he's going to win the battle and it's, it's not because of men who were experienced. We don't know, but that's just what God says. So Ahab, in this instance, like he does on some other occasions, actually obeys. It's rare, but Ahab once in a while actually does what the prophet sent to him tells him to do. And so in this case, that's exactly what he does. Verse 15, musters the young men of the rulers of the provinces. We learn that there's about 232 of them, which apparently, in comparison to the force around them, is really minuscule. And 7,000 troops, in comparison to the kind of numbers the Arameans have, is also minuscule. So they go out and and I don't need to get into all the details. They, God gives them the victory. Um, they go out at noon, and Ben-Hadad, when he's drinking himself, drunk. Now, God is able to sovereignly use the stupidity of men to achieve his purposes. Um, and he does that here. And so they overcome. So God is a God of extravagant covenant grace. And... We need to remember that. We're going to learn in this same chapter that his grace does not mean that disobedience is acceptable. That's how so many would hear that. Extravagant grace. Oh, that means that we don't have to worry about obedience. It never meant. No, that's not what we're saying. We're just, we're noticing here that God extends grace to his covenant people in extravagant and extraordinary ways. This is why we should not be surprised if, if there are 
churches that we just know have wandered from the truth and neglected the word of God, and, and yet they still, they still have the name of Christ upon them. They, they still have sheep among them, true sheep of Christ, and, and we see the folly or the, the shameful conduct of its leaders, and on and on it goes. And, and in our perhaps right concern and our right discouragement when we see churches dishonoring Christ we ought not to be surprised that the grace of God is extravagant wherever his people are found and what can explain churches remaining open that long ago wandered from the plain truth of the scriptures it may be in no small part this character of our God. He is a God of extravagant covenant grace. It's not to be an excuse for license, but it is a fact nonetheless. He's not like us. I'm not of that kind of extravagant grace. I'd be the more that be inclined to just shut it down, take Ahab out. That's what I would think. But God's not like me, and I'm so thankful. Secondly, tonight, in verses 23 to 36, God is not like us because not only is he a God of extravagant grace, but he is also a God of the valleys. A God of the valleys. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the text. Verse 22. They get their tails whooped, and they go back smarting after a great slaughter and they are humbled and the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, is doubtless kind of sitting around and saying, man, I, I don't know what happened there. We, we had the advantage. We, we, we blew through all their outer cities, all their defenses. We had the city by the throat. And, and what happened? Well, um, they are aware of the God of Israel, for the servants, verse 23, of the king of Aram said to him, their gods are the gods of the mountains. Now, they're a little confused because Israel, in truth, only has one God, but this is part of the shame of Ahab and Jezebel and the people of Israel. At this point, they worship multiple gods, so it's not clear that Yahweh is their only God. So they, the servants of the king of Aram they surmise, they ascertain, they deduct that the gods of the king of, of, the, of Israel are mountain gods. And this was the commonplace um, assumption of ancient days and, and even today in parts of the world. Um, but in this time, there were gods of Baal, god of fertility, god of the harvest, and, and there were various gods, gods of the sun, gods of the night, gods of the sea, gods of anything and everything multiplied. And especially there were gods of certain areas, certain turf. And when you went from one nation to another or one geographical kind of turf to another, you wanted to be sure to be on good terms with the god of the lo- uh, of that zip code so that things went well with you. They assumed that gods had boundaries. Well, of course, they were wrong. 
Because God, Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel, who is our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not God of the mountain. He's a God of the mountains and of the valleys and of the sea and of the heavens and of the night and of the day. In other words, our God, the one true God, recognizes no boundaries. He is God over all. Psalm 33 this morning, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together. He lays the deeps in storehouses. Just those verses in Psalm 33 just went from the outer boundaries of the universe to the deepest part of the trench of the ocean. He's God over all. Well, the servants of Ben-Hadad don't know this, and they're going to get a lesson. They determine, you know what, we're not going to fight him in the mountains. We'll get our chariots together. We'll beat him on the field, on the plain. And that's actually a pretty good plan because... Um, Chariots were the horses and chariots were the nuclear weapon of ancient warfare. If you didn't have them, your men would just usually get mowed down on the field, on the plain. So it's a dire situation, even if the servants of Ben Hadad are mistaken. So once again, God extends grace out of nowhere. Ben Hadad. Uh, musters, verse 26, his troops, and they, the sons of Israel, have to go fight him, but out of nowhere, once again, verse 28, then a man of God, we don't know his name, we don't know if it's Elijah the Tishbite, we're not told, but he comes near and speaks to the king of Israel and says, thus says Yahweh, because the Arameans have said, Yahweh is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore he will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Now, the sad thing is, it's not only the Arameans who had wrong thoughts about the God of Israel. So did the people of Israel. So did Ahab. So God, for the sake of his own name, who he is, his reputation, is indignant and wants to make clear the truth. He's not a God of the valleys. That, you don't want to say that about God. You don't want to antagonize God. You can. And the way to antagonize God is to suggest that there is some boundary, some place where he is not. And I appreciate Dale Ralph Davis and his commentary, if you're following along with that at all, and I encourage you to do so. It was helpful in pointing out that we may not be like Ahab, but we can have that tendency, and I must admit, I can have that tendency, I think we all can, to think that God has certain specialties, especially in our modern times. Um, even we can begin to think maybe subtly that our faith is an ancient faith. It certainly isn't popular of all the tens of thousands of peoples driving by here, tens of thousands. I mean, where do they all come from? They're, they're all over the place. Um, I know they're from other states, a lot of them, but they're just swarming up and down the highway here, and that's good for New Hampshire. But how many of them have thought, 
we should worship God today? Mm, probably not many. So we are antiquities. We are worshipers on Sunday. And um, we can maybe even begin to think ourselves, well, yes, this is, we do believe in the God of the Bible. This is something we do, but let's be practical. He's not really concerned about politics anymore. Uh, modern economics, you know, that's ah, it's a stretch for God. Technology, I mean, do we tend to think that God is kind of like the grandmother who doesn't know how to use a cell phone? He doesn't know that kind of thing. Um, modern uh, politics and wars, Russia, Ukraine, Putin. We read our news, maybe the Wall Street Journal or whatever. Uh, that's why I like to read. Uh, whatever newspaper you happen to like or whatever news you get from, do we tend to think that God is, God is, he's comfortable with church. That's, that's where God is. But here, oh, this is too messy. Too messy for him. Don't want to think that. He is God over all the earth and there is no place that he is not God. God of all. He recognizes no boundaries. He's not like We are. I'm limited. I have boundaries. I have specialties. I really don't know much about politics, and uh, I really know very little, but that's not true of God. Well, thirdly tonight, verses 31 to 43, we learn that after after God uh, fulfills his word through the prophet, and of course they strike down the Arameans in 29 and 30, and and we're overwhelmed by those numbers. I mean, those numbers are vast, and sometimes uh, scholars uh, suggest that some of the numbers, you know, maybe are inflated or whatever. I I take them at face value. Uh, It is easy in making copies of the scriptures for for numbers sometimes to be messed up, but, but we shouldn't be surprised by this, for in the Civil War, we had casualties of this kind. Um in hand-to-hand combat. In verse 30, notice that God fights for Israel in a way that's similar to what he did at Jericho. They flee to the city of Aphek, and the wall falls down on 27,000 men. Can he do that? Sure. We've had modern earthquakes who have, that have killed that number of people by buildings falling on them. So God wins the victory, And then Ben-Hadad, the king of the Arameans, when his vast army defeated, comes to the city and hides. And he suddenly changes his tune. He's no longer looking for the humiliation of King Ahab. He's looking for the saving of his own neck. And unlike the kings and gods of other nations, the servants of Ben-Hadad, verse 31, have heard this rumor that the house of Israel are kings of loving kindness. Now, interesting, that's the word, Hebrew word hesed. That is, that is the kind of grace that God shows, his loving grace, his faithful kindness. So they suggest, hey, maybe we'll find mercy Maybe they find mercy. Well, he does. Ben-Hadad goes out groveling 
in a presentation of humiliation. And the, the servants go to King Ahab and they say, appealing to Ahab, please let me live, verse 32. And Ahab says, is he still alive? He is my brother. Now let's just pause. What is going on there? Pride. Pride. Ahab is not so concerned about the cause of the Lord and his role as a servant of Yahweh, fulfilling the word and judgment of Yahweh. He's concerned about how he looks. I mean, we've seen this in modern politics so much. We have a, po- a politician who's full in his head of the idea of, of being the appeaser, of being the peacemaker. And so he does something that everybody knows is, is just wrongheaded. And you get the sense that the only reason he's doing that, he's making peace or he's, he's taking a photo with this wicked ruler, is because he likes the idea of being a peacemaker. We've seen so much of that in modern times. It has not so much to do with what's best for anyone else as much as the arrogance of the leader. That's what's going on with Ahab. He, he suddenly is impressed with the idea that he is of such great stature that he has, he has the ability to extend grace. He's like God. But it's not for him to extend grace. Ahab is a servant of the Lord. He is not God himself. So Ben-Hadad plays along with it. He fills Ahab's ears with, with thoughts of Ahab's greatness and grovels and tries to just impress Ahab with with how great Ahab is. And verse 34 at the end, Ahab cuts a covenant with Ben-Hadad. Now, God had made clear in his covenant with Israel that they were not to make any covenant with any foreign, pagan, wicked kings like Ben-Hadad. That was off limits and apparently God had made clear, if not through Moses, through this prophet, and something that's not recorded here, that Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, was in fact Haram. He was, he was devoted to destruction. God in his righteousness and his holiness had determined that Ben-Hadad's days had come to an end. And as an expression of his holiness, Ahab was to be the executor of the justice and judgment of God. But Ahab is too full of himself to be a servant of Yahweh. He wants his own name. He loves the praise of this wicked king. So then we have this scene. It's very strange to us. Verse 35. There's another a certain man of the sons of the prophets. We again don't know who this is. And as an aside, I think that's really interesting that even though we love learning about Elijah the Tishbite and Elisha, we're reminded here maybe that the story at the end of the day is not about Elijah or Elisha, it's about Yahweh, about God. And he has many servants, many prophets. But how strange is this? Prophet comes up to you and says, hey, can you just really hit me hard? 
I mean, just do your best. I mean, just step back, put your full weight into it. I'm sorry if it's going to break your knuckles, but I really want you to pound me like you're a heavyweight boxer. I want, I mean, I want, I want something to show after you're done. I mean, don't just tap me. I mean, you really sock it to me. (laughs) What? But he was told this by verse 35 by Yahweh. This, This was not just a concoction in his head. This isn't a drunk prophet. This is a word of the Lord. This is the plan of God. And boy, to be a prophet in the Old Testament, I am really thankful to be a covenant, new covenant minister, a minister of the new covenant. I mean, I am so thankful. There's nothing in the New Testament about asking one of you to just nail me. So, so he says, you know, just please strike me. <laughs> but, and God had told him that he had to do this. But the man refused to strike him. Now, who can blame the man? I mean, think, you know, I mean, come on, who wants to hit a prophet? You're going along your day on your way, your commute to work, and the prophet of God says, hey, hit me. And he doesn't hit him. And maybe what's even more shocking to us is the judgment that comes. Because he doesn't comply and doesn't obey and hit him, the, the, the prophet says, okay, well, as soon as you walk from me, a lion's going to eat you, strike you down. And as soon as he had walked away from him, a lion found him and struck him down. Wow. Now, remember, the God who is not like us. This, this isn't what we would think. And it's, it's not so much that it's strained. Here's, here's the point. God requires obedience to his word. Whatever we think of his grace, we're reminded here that this God, the God of the scriptures, demands obedience to his word. Verse 36, because you have not listened to the voice of Yahweh. It's a serious thing. Whatever God tells us to do, we must trust. There's nothing in the New Testament, I think, that even comes close to this. Strike me. But isn't it true that sometimes God calls us in his word to do something, and on the surface we think, well, I'm not so sure about that. And if it's clear and revealed, we need to follow it and obey it. So, verse 37, he finds another man, says, please strike me. Now, I, I don't know this, I don't know this, but I suspect that the second man actually heard this story. Did, did you hear, I mean, I mean, they don't have, you know, news, so tr- word travels by mouth, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, uh, words got around. Hey, this prophet asked this guy to hit him. He didn't hit him. And so he was walking down the road, this lion struck him. So if the lion asked you to strike him, you better do it. So <laughs> a man has faced with a choice. Either I hit the prophet or I get you know, hit by a light lion. So he, he hits him and apparently wounds him. I mean, he, really, he really puts it to him. He's not going to be eaten by any lion. So he tags him. And the prophet walks away and stood by the king and disguised himself. Now the point here is he looks like he's wounded from the battle that just took place. And he tells the king Ahab as he's passing by a little parable, a little story, kind of like uh, the prophet uh, came to David telling him a story and, and says to him, you're the man who wants to help him see his disobedience. And he tells this parable where he was told, guard this man, and if for any reason, verse 39, he's missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And a talent of silver is like a million bucks. It's, it's not an amount that you can come up with. So the man is in an impossible situation and he's going to lose his life. 
because he didn't guard this prisoner. And Ahab, in arrogant judgment, says, so shall your judgment be, verse 40, you yourself have decided it. The prophet takes the bandage off, verse 41, the king of Israel recognizes him. We don't know who he is, but he knows he's one of the prophets. And he says, thus says Yahweh, because you've let go out of your hand the man who I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Remember, we're learning how it is that Israel came to destruction, how Ahab and his house came to destruction. And it was not accidental. It was by the God who devotes the wicked to destruction. This is the third point tonight. This God who is not like us is not only a God of extravagant grace, not only a God of the mountains and the valleys who recognizes no boundaries. He is a God who devotes the wicked to destruction. To he is and requires obedience. We're strange. We're we're quick to judge in some circumstances, but, but when it comes to other times, we have a hard time following through and doing what God calls us to do. Perhaps one of the most common evidences of this is how reticent churches are to obey the Lord's, Lord's, and, the Lord's words in Matthew 18 concerning church discipline. Now, church discipline is hard. There's nothing pleasant about it. But looked at another way, it should be just a matter of course. When the evidence is in and it's clear and the word of the Lord is clear, sure, there should be sadness and broken hearts, but it should be just a matter of this is what the Lord has said we are to do. This is what we are going to do. But churches find it very, very difficult in the name of grace often to do such a thing. God is a God who devotes the wicked to destruction, and God is a God who says, through his servant, the Apostle Paul, remove the wicked man from among you. God's not like us. So the king of Israel, verse 43, went to his house sullen and enraged. Why? Because God is who he is. And he's not like what Ahab wants him to be. So that's the choice we're faced with by 1 Kings chapter 20. This God who's not like us, a God of extravagant grace, a God who recognizes no boundaries and will recognize no boundaries, and a God who is a God of holiness, Will we love this God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or will we, like Ahab, be sullen, resent him? May God grant that we love him. Let's pray. So we ask for that, our God. And we must, in truth, recognize that it's not only Ahab who had a heart that was prone to resent you and to be sullen. We have that capacity too. 
please grant to us an understanding of your grace that it is extravagant. Help us to remember that you are not a God who will be boxed in. And help us in this day when your holiness and your justice are maligned largely forgotten by your church. Help us to love you in part for it, even as we tremble as those who have been redeemed by grace. May you be loved among us as you are and not as we would have you to be. We pray in your son's name. Amen.